It's good to see you guys this morning. My name is Tony. I have the privilege of serving here as pastor. Uh, If you're new or visiting or checking us out, we're glad you're here with us. Uh, If you are a young person in elementary school and you'd like to hang out with some other young folks, Miss Jeannie is back there. If you want to stand up and walk over to her, she'll bring you over to your room. And if you are a middle schooler or a high schooler, today you're in with us. Yes. Every so often, if you're new, our middle schoolers and high schoolers have a time where they go off in the other building and have all kinds of fun. Uh, Today you're with me. All right, so maybe just start big picture. So if you're new or visiting, checking us out, just to give you a little sense of where we are and where we've come from. So... You know, every time you walk into a congregation, if you're new visiting, you're like, where am I? You know, what's the story I'm entering? I just want to say you're entering a really profound story of God's presence at work in the world right now. Uh, You ever read the Bible and you're like, I wish I could see God sort of at work. About two years ago, uh, you know, the the 60 people that were here at Mayflower Church uh, were sort of presented with this picture they knew that they were on the verge of, I don't know if they, were, they, they weren't sure if the doors were going to have to close, whether or not things would continue. And they were offered this picture. This guy named Mike Murphy, who's a church planter, was around here. He said this, imagine that this church is a field. And imagine that God is in a bulldozer at the other corner. And you have the keys. The question before you, before them, about two years ago was, Do you give the keys to God and let him do what he wants with this place? Or do you hold on to those keys yourself? Some of these people have been here 30, 40, 50 years loving in this place, experiencing God in this place. And in this real miracle moment, they said, you know what? We're going to trust Jesus. And they handed the keys to God and the bulldozer and allowed for this profound new restart in this place about 16 months ago. And we have seen the profound life of God born in this place over the last year. And I, raise your hand if you were here two years ago when, when you guys had that picture and had to make that decision. All right, so a few of you were. Raise your hand if you have seen God do a pretty incredible thing over these last two years. Yeah, there we go. The amount of change and transformation that has happened in this place has been incredible. You just need to ask around and you can hear story after story of God showing up in profound ways, changing people's lives, changing the direction of this whole community. Now, I sort of bring this up, one, because it's just a story that we just want to keep retelling and retelling because like the Exodus, it's sort of the story that defines where we're going. It provided this amazing foundation of risk and trust and faith in this process of us doing this reboot here in this place. But I also say it today because in the story we're going to read, Jesus says some hard things and people are deciding, do they continue following Jesus or do they go a different direction? Right? Do they continue to trust him or do they decide to go their own way? 
to decide to keep the keys and be like, this is our church. We're going to do it our way. Now, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, this is actually our sixth sermon in chapter six of John. That's the most sermons I've ever given in one chapter of the Bible, but there's, it's a long chapter. Uh, so if you haven't been with us, what, is there anyone who's been here for every one of those sermons other than me? A couple of you, there you go. It's a lot of different messages. Big picture. Six weeks ago, Jesus is in the wilderness. He, the people are following him. There's a picture, I think, of a map. They're in the, the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. There's no towns over there for the people to get fed. There's somewhere between, let's say, ten and 15,000 people. Jesus, with uh, five loaves and two fish, feeds this huge group of people. They want to make him king. He says, it's not my time. So what does he do? He retreats. No one's really sure what cave he hid in. The disciples then get in a boat. They go through the northeast corner over to Capernaum. In the middle of that boat ride, there's this massive storm. They're afraid they're going to sink. Jesus walks on the water, meets them in the boat, and they're like, what is going on? The storm stops. They make it to Capernaum. Now, there's a bunch of people over in the northeast corner being like, where did the disciples go? Where did Jesus go? And now they're not sure, so they decide, okay, now we're going to go back to Capernaum. That group shows up there. They start talking with Jesus in the synagogue. They have this three sermons worth of conversations and uh, in which Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the bread of life. If you want to have your hunger satisfied, come to me. If you want to have your thirst quenched, come to me. He's constantly talking about this idea of the Exodus, right? So in the Exodus, there's the Hebrew people are trapped in slavery in Egypt, right? God frees them through these different signs and miracles, brings them into the promised land, but in order to do that, he had to go through the wilderness, right? So Jesus feeds people in the wilderness. They're like, oh my gosh, the manna is happening again. You're Moses, you're leading us out, right? Then Jesus says, oh, I am even more than that. I'm the bread come down from heaven, right? The manna is bread that comes down from heaven, that feeds the people, meets their daily needs. He's saying, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, that meets your needs to such an extent that you will never die. He keeps kind of leaning into this, this idea of the new exodus that he is trying to institute, that he is trying to lead, and that he is the center of. So we have this kind of building through the chapter. And at the end, right, we enter into this point of decision for people. Jesus is like, I'm the bread of life. If you eat me, if you use me to satisfy your thirst, you will experience eternal life. And this is where we pick up in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard of it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you here who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? 
Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right, so a lot of moving parts here, but at the outset what we see is that the disciples have heard what Jesus has talked about for the last, you know, 40 verses. And they say, man, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Who can embrace it? Who can really take this in? Right, that Jesus is the bread come down from heaven, that he is the manna that they need to live on, that he is the, the one who is the holy one of God, right, who is gonna bring the kingdom in a profound way, who's going to reconcile them to the Father, right? All these things. Now, on the audience, on one level, is waiting for the Messiah, right? They're waiting. They want the Messiah to come. They're waiting for the anointed one of God to come and usher in the kingdom, overthrow Rome, who's leading them. They're waiting for that, for this person to come. They've been waiting 400 years. And now the moment's upon them. Do they believe and trust in Jesus? Or are they going to wait for another? What are they going to do? Right in verse 66, we say, see that many of them left. They walked away. But in verse 61, notice what Jesus doesn't do. Right? He doesn't cave simply because he senses opposition in the room. He doesn't have an anxiety attack. Right? He isn't pressured by the crowd. He isn't sort of doing a marketing campaign trying to couch his message to his target audience. He doesn't seem all that concerned about the size of the crowd that's following him. His whole goal, as we've seen through John, is to do the will of the Father, to speak the words of the Father, to align his heart and life with the kingdom of the Father. That is what Jesus is about. Now, depending on where you come from in church life, uh, you know, you're... picture of Jesus might be different. So like I I remember leading, before we moved here, we were in Washington and I remember leading a Bible study and there was a guy in the study who had gone to church, you know, his whole life and, but he had never really studied the life of Jesus portrayed in the gospels. And I remember him saying to me, pulled me over one Sunday or one, is it Sunday? Yeah, Sunday evening. He's like, you know, I grew up and like Jesus, everyone always told me that Jesus like was my friend. He's like my buddy. Uh, and, and I see that. Jesus is crazy compassionate and he's crazy loving. But he's also really intense. And it was this moment where he realized that Jesus was calling him to something. And one of the things, right, that we see, Jesus says, he is the bread of life. He says, you can work for other food. You can work for food that perishes, but he says you can also work for food that leads to eternal life, right? You can believe in the one that God sent. Jesus isn't trying to appeal to everyone. He is trying to state the case of the Father and say this is what it looks like to participate in the kingdom. So verse 61, right? He isn't anxious or thrown off when people are on the fence. In uh, 61, it says that they're offended, right? It's where we get this word scandalized in Greek, scandalizo. So you have this, they're scandalized. How could you say this? And then in verse 62, Jesus does something that's kind of interesting. He's like, 
All right, so if you guys are scandalized by the fact that I said I am the bread coming down from heaven, check this out. Then he says, wait until the day when I am ascending to be with the Father. Right? I'm going to ascend. And they don't know exactly what he's getting at. Right? He's talking about when he is going to be crucified, resurrected, he's going to ascend to be at the right hand of God and send the Holy Spirit down to be with us. Right? They don't get this. But he's alluded to it before. In uh, chapter 1, verse 50, he says to Nathaniel, you're going to see greater things than this. You will see the Son of Man ascending and descending from heaven. They don't know all that is going to happen. And in John, Jesus is constantly doing this. He's constantly talking about things that will happen that they'll only understand in retrospect. And then in verse 63, he kind of shifts a little bit. Right now he shifts between this contrast between flesh and spirit. Right? The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. So you have grumbling. You have Jesus talking about ascending, descending, confusing people. And then he goes back into flesh and spirit. And most scholars think this operates in one of two ways. One, it either is what Jesus saying, you know, last week we talked about the flesh, right? Jesus says, eat my flesh. And they're horrified, like, are you encouraging cannibalism? Some scholars think that he's now sort of softening those words a little bit. It's like, oh, you don't really need to eat my flesh. I'm talking about a spiritual thing here, which is a possibility. Others think that he's referring back to earlier in the discourse when they show up. I think it's verse 28. They show up because their, their stomachs are full from eating the bread in the wilderness. And he's saying, hey, stop thinking so much about your stomachs. Think about the deeper things I am communicating to you. Whichever way it is, Jesus is clearly pointing to a deeper purpose that they are missing. But they get enough. And they get enough to either be confused or disturbed or thrown off or whatever it is, because in verse 66, we clearly see what happens. Right? After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And we don't know exactly why. We know that there's hard sayings and we know they're scandalized on some level. Exactly how? We're not sure. What's important to note, though, is up to this point, there have been people that are mad at Jesus, people that don't really like him all that much, even a whiff of, hey, we want to kill him. But this is the first time that any disciple has decided to leave him. Now, in order to sort of understand this, we need to do a quick dive into first century rabbinic discipleship. So if you, are, if you want to follow a rabbi in the first century, you, the basic proverb is you walk so close to them, right, that you walk in the dust of your rabbi so that their sandal as it's going through the desert flips up the dust, it covers your legs and covers your body and you want to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Now, when you're getting covered in the dust of your rabbi, you're not like hopping between rabbis. You have one rabbi, and you are becoming an imitator of that rabbi. It's not just sort of a class where you're just learning information. You are becoming that person. How they think, how they act, all their theology, how they sort of live everyday life, you are becoming them. Paul talks about that we are supposed to be imitators of God, very rabbinic. So maybe they liked Jesus' teaching. Maybe they were excited to have their bellies filled in the wilderness. 
Maybe they were excited. There was like a lot of fanfare and excitement. And they're like, oh, I want to be a part of this, you know. But somewhere Jesus crosses the line. And they go back to whatever they were doing before. You know, the tax collectors go back to collecting taxes. The carpenters go back to building. Whatever they were doing, they go back to whatever normal was. Maybe some of them think of Jesus from time to time. Maybe for some of them, it was the fad they did in their early 20s. You know, whatever. Some of them maybe rejoin him later. We don't know. What we do know is that in verse 67, Jesus turns his attention to the 12. This is the first time he's mentioned the 12. And the 12 are, in the Hebrew Bible, is sort of symbolic of the nation of Israel. Right? There are 12 tribes. He's gathering 12 disciples to reconstitute the people of Israel, creating a new exodus, forming a new people based on the Father and on Jesus and this crazy thing that he is trying to do. And he says this to them. It's a really profound question. He says, do you want to go away as well? It's this very open moment. He gives them a choice. He doesn't coerce them. He doesn't manipulate them. He just asks them, you know, what do you want? I mean, Jesus says something actually really similar in chapter 1. He, John the Baptist is baptizing people, and right after it, uh, he's baptizing, he says, now look, the Lamb of God who's come to take, the sin, take away the sins of the world to Jesus, right? And then these two guys, Nathaniel and this other unnamed disciple, start following Jesus. Kind of creepy, but they just start like walking behind him. And Jesus turns around and says to them, what do you want? And again, now he's doing that with the group, with the community, saying, what do you want? Now, the story, this is a critical, critical moment, if you think about it. Like, what if they said, we're done? What happens there? That they began to follow Jesus, they have left friends, they have left family, they have left possessions. And this is how Peter responds. By sort of a spokesman of the community, he says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, in our very individualistic culture, we sort of maybe implicitly assume that Peter's just giving a personal confession, but this is actually a corporate confession of the 12 of their alignment with Jesus, right? Notice the use of the word we, and then Peter becomes a spokesman, often of the 12, representing them and what they think. Interesting, also, Peter doesn't speak in terms of location, right? They're like, they are walking away. It's a very sort of visual, they're going this way. The 12 are here. He's like, to whom shall we go? Say, no, Jesus, we're going to go to you. Now, he gives a few reasons for this. The first is that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Some people are offended at Jesus' words. They don't like what he says. And because of this, they walk away. But he says, no, no, no. Even if, Jesus, you say things that are hard, or even if you say things that are confusing, we are going to trust you because your words lead to eternal life. Your words are life-transforming. Right? You are the word who in the beginning created all things. God spoke and all things came into being. You are the word of eternal life. Second, Peter says, we have believed and come to know. 
right? A few weeks ago, we talked about the difference between believing and believing in, right? They've come to trust Jesus, not just sort of say, uh, we state the fact of your existence. You actually exist at this moment in time. No, no, no. They believe, they trust in him, and they trust in him that he is the Holy One of God. Holy in Hebrew, right, is to be set apart. This idea of unique, different, that you are God's unique being in the world who has come to do something extraordinary. We believe in you. Now, it's sort of at this point in the confession, this sort of is hanging in the air that Jesus turns to them and says, you know, did I not choose you, the 12, right? Didn't the Father draw you to me? Didn't the Father draw you to me and I've embraced you? I haven't cast you away. And yet, one of you is going to betray me. It's kind of this bombshell, right? You have these people leaving. You have these people saying, we're in. And yet, even among this people that are saying, we're with you, Jesus, one of them will end up being the one who betrays Jesus. Even the ones who persevere through the hard sayings and endure, even one of them will turn on him. So what we see in these 11 verses, you have hard sayings. Hard sayings leads to people departing. Jesus is like, what about you guys? The 12 have this beautiful confession, but even in the midst of it, another person will leave, depart, and betray. And the question is, at this point, how does this then translate into present life? You're like, I wasn't here for the four sermons before this. This one, I'm trying to figure out how it relates to me. Uh, Let's figure out, let's sort of lean into how can this apply in our lives? And the first, I think we just, I just want to start with, you know, there is a group of people that no longer walked with him. Right? And how that happens in the first century at that moment is Jesus said things that lead to this, like, clear choice. In that moment, we're done. Right? There's this clear break that happens. In my experience, though, in modern life, is that it's more of a gradual drift then it is a clear, decisive moment and break. Almost everyone I know that was devoted to Jesus at one time that decided not to follow him anymore uh, didn't happen in a moment. The foundation of it was built over years. So like one frame we often use here at Wellspring is called centered set. And so the idea is this, Jesus and his kingdom are in the middle And the question is, are you moving closer or are you moving further away, right? It's a dynamic model of movement. And the spiritual life is about moving closer to Jesus, aligning our heart and life with him and his kingdom, right? So the question then with today, no longer walking with him would mean, I'm going to turn and go the other way. And I think there's three basic steps of how this tends to happen. Are there exceptions? Of course. But in my experience, this is how it begins. The first thing that happens is there's like a priority diffusion. So there should be one next slide, I think. All right, so there's three elements. The first one is priority diffusion. So what happens is Jesus is, becomes one among many centers. Right, so rather than Jesus being the center that guides our life, that we are directing our life on, the kingdom we are trying to lean into, it starts to become a diffusion of centers. You start to have three or four. Maybe it's work. And there tend to be good things. This is not a question of like evil versus good things. This is a question of multiple good things become the center. Could be work, could be family, could be kids, could be whatever. The point is that 
precision of we are basing our heart and life on Jesus becomes, uh, it kind of diffuses. So now there's a lot of different things that pull at our attention and our allegiance. Right? So there's priority diffusion. The second thing is then you have a decreased connection to Jesus uh, personally. Right? So as that diffusion happens, what generally happens is now you're juggling more and more balls. And so now you're trying to having a harder time finding places to pray, to listen to the voice of Jesus. You're having a harder time finding scriptures that are really anchoring you. You tend to have this decreased connection to the person of Jesus. Your priorities shift, then your personal connection to Jesus shift, and then lastly, you have sort of a distancing or disconnection from a Jesus-centered community. And then when all these things, right, so the Jesus-centered community, what it does is it helps you to be like, no, Jesus is, Jesus is really important. No, 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 your personal relationship with Jesus really matters. But when that community is gone, then you have this last wall that buttresses you. It's like a positive peer pressure that keeps you in the game. When all three of those are gone, you have this real quick drift away from Jesus. Does that kind of make sense? Big picture? Now, I think one of the things that's helpful is like, so this is kind of like big picture. Maybe you relate to some, maybe you don't relate to others. I thought maybe three questions might help us get into the dirt of this a little bit better. First question is this. When was the last time you really trusted Jesus? Now, I don't mean like, oh, I prayed today. I mean like trusted, like you invested your time in a profound way in Jesus's kingdom. You invested your money, your resources into his kingdom. You took your skills, the gifts that God has given you and leveraged them for his kingdom. And you took the risk to say, I'm going to try this guy. This might fail, but I'm going to take a risk on you. When was the last time you took a risk? Second, when was the last time you repented? Right, if we use the centered set, image, right? You have this idea of Jesus is the center, walking away from him, right, is one thing. Repenting is then turning and going back towards the center. Like, when was the last time you're like, man, I've totally messed up? God help me. And then three is, when was the last time you asked for help? Like, you were struggling spiritually. You were inundated by your life. You weren't sure what to do, so you reached out from someone who's a follower of Jesus for help to get prayed for, to say, man, I am lost, wandering, confused. I need help. When was the last time you asked for help? Because I would say this. If you can't think of a time in the last year when you did at least some of these things, I would sort of raise the alert level to maybe I am drifting more than I thought. These are all things that people who center their life on Jesus, they do on a regular basis. So if you look at your life and you're not asking for help from people, you haven't repented in a while saying, man, I'm totally messed up. God help me. You haven't taken a risk on Jesus to trust him. I would say probably worth looking into because my guess is you've drifted more than you thought. And maybe just really practically, I'd invite you, tell someone. Like, don't go another week, don't go another month without actually letting someone into this process for you. 
Second thing I, I think this way this sort of practically applies in our lives is that, right, you have those in contrast who sort of walk away from Jesus and then Peter and the disciples say, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God with the words to eternal life. And we trust you, we believe in you. Which I think begs the question for us, like, what do you believe? What do you think? Who do you say that Jesus is? I was at the dentist earlier this week. Um, and I was just sitting there, I was looking at magazines, right? And there's these magazines, and like the, one of them says, six road trips that'll change your life. And I was at another spot this week, and it's like, the, the cover said, you know, the body you've always dreamed of. You know, another one, if you want to seek, you know, the peace and calm you've always desired. You know, three simple steps. We live in a world where people are always telling us, these are the things you need to do. These are the words you need to trust in in order to experience life. We also live in a world that is profoundly sort of a buffet spirituality, where we get to cobble together what we want to eat, right? We kind of look out there and say, I want a little of this, I want a little of that, I'll have a little of Jesus, I'll have a little of this, you know? And we cobble together this buffet spirituality that we think is going to give us life. And there's something certainly to it, but it does seem, in my opinion, to contrast with what we're talking about here in John 6. Jesus says that he is the bread of life. He is not a slice of the bread of life. Right? He's not a crumb. Peter says that he has the words of eternal life. He doesn't have one. The other first century rabbis don't have another one. You know, you're not cobbling it together. Jesus is the center. It's a little more like we operate in a world of a buffet spirituality. Jesus offers us a fixed menu. Right? And his fixed menu is amazing. Best chef in the world. It's delicious. It's really thoughtful. But there aren't a lot of like, oh, I'll have this. I'll have that. You know, it's like, no, no, this is what you get. And Jesus says to us, right? Because I think one of the things about the buffet thing is it's actually anxiety producing if we think about it. There's an under, underlying anxiety in the whole buffet mentality because we are the ones deciding the meaning of life. It's an incredible amount of pressure and you feel it in our whole society. This conflict, this tension under the surface. And I think to us, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Also, just in the lens of first century rabbinic discipleship, you don't like pick multiple rabbis. You pick one. You don't hop from one rabbi to another. It's like, no, Jesus, you are the rabbi. And Jesus isn't even just a rabbi, right? He's also the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one who reconciles us to the Father. He's the holy one of God, who's the unique voice of God, the bread of life in the world. And how much more does he deserve our attention and our focus? which sort of brings me to my last way I think this speaks into modern life. It's simply this, like, what do you want? And Jesus says to Nathaniel, what do you guys want? You're following me, what are you here for? He says to the disciples standing there, what do you want to do? Like, do we want to be the kind of people who center our life and our hope in the kingdom? Or do we want to be a kind of people that are sort of pulled in a thousand directions with our heart set on all kinds of different things? Right? If we come back to the centered set model, Jesus is the center. 
his kingdom in the center. And the question is, do we want to align our life and our hope on him and his kingdom? Now, I don't pretend to know all that's going on in your life. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could be pulling you away from Jesus at this very moment, right? It could be someone that you love that's suffering, and that's you're questioning the goodness of God and whether you should trust him. It could be something in your life that's going really hard. And you're just like, man, I don't have time for Jesus. I'm juggling a thousand things. I don't pretend to know all the moving pieces in your life. But I know this for myself. I was spending some time this week just thinking about how much my life shifted when God came into my life in college. I look at sort of the the buffet spirituality that I was living where I felt very lonely I felt lost. I felt like I was wandering. I felt anxious. I felt like I was always trying to prove my worth to people. And then Jesus entered my life, and I have just watched profound healing happen, profound transformation happen. Watched myself actually learn how to be in relationships with other people, not just use people. I can see that as I have trusted in the person of Jesus, I have experienced the life of God. And I've watched as our congregation, right, has taken the risk to trust in Jesus, to give the keys to God and the bulldozer, watching how God has shown up in profound ways. But that there's a truth in the psalm, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere.